All right, well, let's do this. Let's bow in prayer, and we're going to jump into God's Word. Father, thank you. Thank you for this time of worship. Thank you that when we called, you answered, and you came to our rescue. And I know that there are people who come into this room, Lord, with all kinds of different um, burdens. Um, Father, they um, are needing you more than they need anything else. So, Lord, get me out of the way. Get us out of the way. Allow them to connect to you so that they may experience your peace and your perspective, God. The power that you offer those who turn to you. May we experience that today and may we do so fully and freely. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Turning your Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18 we're continuing in the message series through the entire gospel of Matthew. And as you're turning there, I want to show you this little tool that I've got up here. Um, so we're hosting high school boys over at our house during Disciple Now. And so you know how that is. We've got some little projects going on. One of the projects is to lightly remodel one of the upstairs bedrooms. So I've been changing out the floor. And I try to stay away from doing those things because it always ends up costing more money than I'd planned. You guys know this. And, and taking longer than what you thought it would. And of course, that's been my experience. But this week, in kind of thinking about you know, what Jesus said here in Matthew 18, I thought about how important this tape measure is. How important is this standard? (laughs) You know, this thing is the standard. This is kind of the first essential tool, right? It's the standard for all the other work that I'm going to do in the bathroom. It's, it, it helps me to measure everything correctly, and it allows me to know what to cut, what to keep, it helps all the pieces fit together, right? If it's not measured correctly, they're not going to fit right. They're not going to work right. And certainly they're not going to last in the long term. They're not going to look any good. This thing is really important. The standard by which I measure this bathroom determines the quality of the bathroom. The standard by which you measure your life will determine the quality of your life. And in this passage today, in the context of greatness, so the title of the sermon is Ascent. The idea is about ascending into greatness. And what does that really look like? What does it mean to be great in God's eyes? Well, the disciples often had discussions about greatness in relationship to God. In Mark chapter 10, James and John, you may remember, asked Jesus to sit on the left side of Christ and the right side of Christ when he came into his kingdom. In other words, they wanted to rule and reign with Jesus in heaven. And, of course, Jesus answered them politely, but basically said no. In Luke chapter 22, the disciples were actually arguing about who was the greatest between them. They were having an argument, a discussion about who among them was the greatest. You can imagine this discussion that they were having. And you remember Jesus' famous response was, Listen, guys, the greatest among you must become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. Well, this text today looks very much like those words from Luke chapter 22. Let's read verses 1 through 6, Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives a stern warning. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. A discussion about greatness and Jesus inverting the whole discussion. Jesus changing the definition of what greatness is. So they were obsessed with being great, obsessed with greatness. We have the same obsession in today's world. Let me tell you a little bit about what that looks like because there's some dynamics here that are really important. These things run really deep and somewhat subconsciously in us. And they have great meaning to affect the rest of our lives. So greatness, first of all, in today's world, in worldly ways, is defined in relationship to others. It is almost always defined in relationship to others. In other words, greatness is defined outside of ourselves. And that inherently is the problem. Because if greatness has to be found outside of yourself, then that says that something is wrong with the self. So this aspect of our greatness is only determined in comparison and in contrast to other people means that something inherently is wrong. So greatness, think about it in this, in this sense. Me being better than other people does not necessarily mean that I'm the best me I can be. It doesn't mean that I'm reaching my potential, Okay. So being better than others does not mean you're being your best you. It's not enough for you just to be superior to others. That could be far less than your potential. Ernest Hemingway said it like this. He said, there is nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. Very good. Also, greatness is often and really, I think, almost always measured externally. It's kind of similar to the first thing. In our world today, this obsession with greatness has to do with external reward, the things on the outside that we gain in the form of money or power, prestige, fame. Ultimately, in the pursuit of those things, in the acquisition of those things, they always leave us wanting more. Why? Because how much is enough stuff? How much money is enough? And isn't it true that no matter how great you become, there's always somebody better? (laughs) Which means then this pursuit, this obsession with greatness leads to a life really of discontent. This insatiable desire for more because there's always more to get. There's always someone better. And then finally, our obsession with greatness is truly, and this is at a base level, is truly a distortion of self. It's a distortion of who I am. In other words, it's a perversion of who God made me to be. It's this feeling that who God made me to be is not enough. And this works really in two ways. When we try and we try and we try to be great, as the world would define it, and we don't succeed, we don't measure up, we fail, then what happens? We can self-condemn at that point. Where it's not just that we failed, but that we're a failure. And we become defeated in in our lives. We judge and condemn ourselves as being inadequate and being failures. Or, on the other end of the spectrum, let's say we achieve, we try and try, we work and work, and we achieve, we have a measure of success, we find ourselves being greater than others, superior to others, pride sets in. And pride, listen, it's the oldest sin in the Bible. Pride leads to self-deceit. And we begin to, because we've succeeded in one area and become greater than other people in one area, we begin to assign all forms of meaning to the rest of life. 
<laughs> you know, not just that we're great in this. Let's say we've been great in our career. Then we begin to feel like we're great people. And that could be self-delusion. It can certainly be self-deceit. Where we begin to think that we're better than we really are. And ultimately, all of this obsession with greatness is a lack of inner security. The obsession, now Jesus, let me, let me be clear. Jesus is not saying to not achieve. Achievement, accomplishment is good. He's talking about the way by which we get there. He's talking about the attitudes by which we pursue those things. And he's talking about an absolute obsession with it. It says something deeply about who we are on the inside. And in essence, it's a slap in the face to the God who made us. Because we, in essence, by doing that, are undermining our gifts and our abilities and the way that God made us and our unique contribution that we give to the world. We're trying to be someone we're not. These are the trappings of the obsession with greatness. So, again, these things run deep. And Jesus here, with the illustration of a little child, shines a light on the hearts and the motivation of the disciples, and by default does so with us. He's talking about us having a childlike response of faith to him. Not a childish response. He's not talking about being immature. He's talking about being innocent. He's talking about all the great virtues of the youngest of children. He would set that two- or three-year-old kid up on his lap, and he would point to that kid and say, Be like this, and you will be great. And he uses one word in particular, one word that defined greatness in his kingdom, in his economy. You see, in this world, we ascend into greatness. In God's world, God's economy, we descend into greatness. We become great by becoming humble. He moved from external definitions of character, to, of, of greatness, to internal definitions of greatness, which have to do with character. So when he said, be humble, in fact, he said, listen, you must become humble like a child to even enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be great in it. What did he mean? What are some aspects of humility in children that he was saying? Well, here's what I speculate. It's hard to know exactly. I mean, he was talking about being humble and being humble as a child. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I think it means this. First of all, children are dependent. Children are so dependent upon their parents, right? I mean, younger children, really dependent upon caring parents. They have no power. They have no control. They have no other options. This is the idea. Unable to care for themselves is the idea. No other place to go. And when we have no other place to go, then we become dependent upon that one thing that we're sure of, and that's the way it is with children. You know, Abraham Lincoln, in this overwhelming responsibility that he had of leading the Union through the Civil War, was often just intimidated by that. He talks about having a feeling of nowhere else to go but to God. And here's what he says. He says, I've been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for that day. You ever had those days? It's not a bad place to be necessarily because it causes you to be dependent upon the Father. That which makes us weak makes us also dependent. God uses challenges and problems and weakness in our lives so that we can learn to trust and see that there really is no other option. 
when God is all we have, God is the one that we turn to, is the idea. And so this idea of nowhere else to go leads us to Christ. That's the way it is with children. I had a real experience of this years ago with my middle son. Kind of this lesson in his dependence upon us, though he wanted to be independent. So he had an argument with his uh, little sister. And back then, he was about eight years old. Back then, it happened quite a bit. Not so much anymore. But he got in trouble, and we were talking. And he said, well, I just want to leave. <laughs> said, I want to leave. And I said, okay, fine. So I said, go get some stuff up in your room. He went up, he packed his little backpack, you know. And I opened the door and just pointed him out. And he kind of walked out <laughs> and walked down the driveway. And I saw him look down the street one way, and I saw him look down the street the other way. I saw him standing there thinking, I'm peeking through the window, right? I don't want him to see me. By the way, he's had two years of counseling to get over this traumatic experience. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I felt terrible, you know, because this is what happened. He looked both ways. He was standing there, and then he began crying. And he sat down on the curb, and he began crying. And I uh, walked outside, and I put my arm around him, and we had our talk. You know, it was the last time he ever did that. And um, he learned he had nowhere else to go, which made him ultimately what? To be able to respond to his father who loved him. That's the way children are. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Next, children are dependent, but they're also authentic. They are real. <laughs> they are honest. Most of you have stories about a child who in some situation was maybe too honest. And maybe too honest with a stranger or something like that. They're literal, right? They're simple. That's the ideal here. Jesus absolutely abhorred hypocrisy. He abhorred pretense. People who pretended to be something on the outside but were something different on the inside. In fact, he said about the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, he says, you hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs who look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are dead men's bones. And children are just real. What you see is what you get. And there's a simplicity to that I think is pretty innocent and refreshing to God when we respond to him like that. I mean, they're not complex, right? Younger children are not sophisticated. Their logic is simple. Their logic is literal. And again, I just think that Jesus finds that refreshing, and that's why he would compare our faith and our response to him like that of a child. I found this week, we found this week, um, some questions that were asked to children um, questions that we would know the answers to, but because of their simple logic, right, their literal kind of thinking, their answers are a little bit different. So here's one of the questions. It was asked to a child, in which battle did Napoleon die? And the kid said, his last one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> of course. Um, where was the Declaration of Independence signed? At the bottom of the page. And then here, here's my favorite. What is the main reason for divorce? The kid said marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Simple, literal kinds of thinking. I mean, that just leads to an authentic spirit. There's no pretense. Authentic also in trust, 
I mean, children are naive enough to believe. They believe what grown-ups say until they learn, you know, that that trust is broken at times. They believe what grown-ups say. And yet, they're not so grown-up to have lost the wonder of belief. They're not cynical. They're not skeptical. They still have the ability to have hope and see beauty and to be impressed with life. That's the ideal. Childlike faith is a simple faith that dares to believe God. And that's why Jesus is wanting us to have faith like a child, that we would just dare to believe again what God says as a child believes and listens to his father. And then here's the last characteristic that Jesus may have been referring to, that children love freely. In fact, this may be what Jesus was saying more than anything. That kids just love freely and they love openly. Grown-ups somehow lose their ability to love and the passion behind that love. Sometimes when love grows old, love grows cold. And we forget how to love as we once did. Children are just full of love. They love freely. They love recklessly. They love abundantly. They love without condition. They love without fear. And that love, you know this as a parent, as Jesus experienced it, it changes your heart. It changes your day many times. I remember coming home years and years ago um, after having a really bad day at work. And um, probably one of my worst days in ministry. And coming home, and you know how you drag yourself through the door on days like that, plop down on the couch. Well, my little girl, Kaylee, I don't know how old she was, maybe five, six jumped up in my lap, you know, as they do get your attention, and would ask each other, how was your day? You know, that kind of thing. So she said, how was your day? And I said, sweetie, daddy had a really bad day. And she paused, and I'll I'll just always remember this. She paused, and she said, that's okay, daddy, because I'm here with you now. (laughs) And nothing else mattered at that point. The, the love of a child just changing my heart, changing my attitude. That's how it works. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Isn't that beautiful? There is no fear in love. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because God first loved us. This is how our love for Christ should be characterized. And it's a love that changes the human heart. And I want you to think about our response to God. Maybe as a little child that would climb up into our Heavenly Father's lap. Just love Him. What would that do for the heart of God? I know what that did for me with my daughter that day. What would that do such more perfectly with God? It would be an amazing kind of thing. I want to show you a video now of the love of a child and how it changed a person's heart who really, really needed to experience that love. Little girl, he said, I know I have room in my heart for a lot more. And that's what, that's what love does. 
And when Jesus was saying, have faith like this little child, maybe he was talking about just something that we could return to. It was just innocent and simple. Where we, we love without reservation the Father who loves us so much. We climb up into his lap and we just enjoy his presence. Not cries of help, not a shopping list of things we want, things we need. Just enjoying the love of the Father and our love for him. So maybe, maybe you've got a little bit too much grown up in you. Maybe you need a little bit more child in you. Jesus would say in response to him, that's greatness. Humility that expresses itself in dependence upon the Father. Humility that expresses itself in free, absolute love toward him. And humility that looks so much like a child that just loves his daddy. That's greatness. What is the tool that you're using to measure greatness? We become great in God's eyes. Great like a child. May God give us the strength to have that kind of faith and that kind of love for our Father. Let's bow in prayer, okay? Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that in your providence, you um, had Matthew record this experience, Jesus, the disciples, and this beautiful illustration of faith. And what is at the heart of our relationship with you. Jesus said, unless you become like a child, become humble. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes like this child is the greatest. Well, Lord, help us to measure greatness by what you want, what you see, not by the world's standards. We chase these dreams and these pursuits. They're so fleeting. They're so unstable and insecure. And yet you are the same. And help us to find joy and contentment in you. Help us to be humble people. The world is filled with pride. God, I believe that just about every problem can be solved with humility. Humility fixes things between people. And humility fixes things between us and you. Pride stands in the way of it, so strip us of pride. Make us dependent. Make us authentic. Make us people who love you freely. That we may have hands to serve you, knees that bow at your feet, and hearts that express deep love for you. That's what we pray for, Father. We pray these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.